You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. And today uh, we're continuing in our series through 1 Timothy. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be there in just a few moments. And the topic that Paul discusses in our passage today is the topic of church leadership. That should be no, uh, no surprise to you if you've been with us. It's one of the main concerns in Ephesus. And yet I just want to pause at the beginning and acknowledge that too many church leaders don't finish strong. Too many church leaders maybe begin their journey as a pastor or a missionary or some kind of ministry leader and they set off to change the world and their intentions are good and their hearts are pure and their motives are pure and that tragically we hear story after story after story of ministry leaders who fall. Some through burnout, some through moral failure and corruption, some have even came out and denied the faith. And these aren't just celebrity pastors of megachurches. I mean, certainly we hear about that. I'm not sure, by the way, if the number of pastors who fall has increased in the last 10 years, or my suspicion is we're just more aware of it with social media and the platforms that go along with the celebrity mentality. No, it's not just the big-name pastors, and we could go on and on and on. Sadly, the list seems never-ending. It's also your personal experience, isn't it? There's so many people in this room, as I look around, where I meet someone and I ask them how they found our church, and they have personally experienced a pastor or a church leader who has fallen away from the ministry. It's something that comes along with the territory of being a pastor is I know lots of other pastors. I went to Bible college and I graduated with people who started off, and I can tell you that no one starts off in ministry envisioning, you know what I want to see happen in 10 years? I want my family to resent me. Right? No one starts off in ministry and thinks, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to develop idolatry for money. No one starts off thinking, I'm going to have an affair one day. No one starts off their ministry journey like that. And so I understand that many people in this room have experience of this. You've seen this. Maybe you have deep church hurt. Those two words, church hurt, I've heard so much in the past number of years. But I I just have to be real with you as well. I have many friends who I've seen this happen to. People that I served alongside. I have, have, you know, just this secondhand experience of witnessing time and time and time and time again. So I just want to pause here at at the beginning and recognize This is not a light and happy subject matter that we're discussing today. This is heavy. 
And for you to be prepared for that, for prepared for the passage and some of the things Paul is going to say. I know we've talked about how Timothy is going to have to go and rebuke elders and remove some of the the eldership from office in Ephesus. And it's easy for us, 2,000 years removed from that, to think, oh yeah, just go in and sit down across the table and fire somebody. But these are people that Paul served alongside and likely appointed himself that he's now a few years removed from that, having to write with heartbreak, Timothy, man, I disciple that guy. You're going to have to go and have a conversation with him and remove him because there's unrepented sin in his life or there's heresy that's in his doctrine, right? Does that make sense? Just want to pause and just acknowledge it's going to get a little heavy today, okay? We are left wondering, with all of these examples of corruption in church leadership, where have all the good leaders gone? And we can easily become cynical and view every leader through the lens of a leader that's fallen in one way or another. And just, I just also want to acknowledge, not every church leader is bad. I'm a church leader. <laughs> man, not every church leader is bad, and not every church leader um, burns out or commits moral failure or is corrupt or denies the faith. And I think about one of the great church leaders of our days, Tim Keller, passed away in May. And I hope there's no scandal that comes out, you know, you know, post his passing. And yet I look at, I've listened to, read some of his books, listened to so many podcasts, and I just, I look at that, and I'm like, man, that's a leader who died of cancer and finished strong to the very end. And need I remind you that the Apostle Paul is also himself a stunning example of a ministry leader who finished strong. Look at Paul's words. Soon before he would be executed, martyred for his faith, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's saying, I'm about to die soon. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only to me, but also to who? To all who have loved his appearing. Who is all? It's you in your faith, in your discipleship journey. And I just want to remind us, isn't that the goal, not just for church leaders, isn't that the goal for... All of us in our discipleship journey to remain faithful to the end. And so today we're talking about church leaders, but really, who are we talking about? We're also talking about all of us because church leaders serve as an example for the Christian to follow. So this should be our goal. I hope that one day I can say those words I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our passage for today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll be starting off in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So here, Paul just acknowledges, hey, when you're in Tim- when you're, Timothy, when you're in Ephesus, it's going to be really easy to get cynical, to look at every church leader through a lens of suspicion, and almost to turn church leadership uh, 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 discipline into somewhat of a witch hunt, 
right? Where somebody says one thing that, you know, is, is taken the wrong way, or, or they act in one way that's maybe even they did fail, or they did stumble, and just Paul is acknowledging to Timothy, there's some elders, there's some church leaders that they do pretty well. And how should we treat the leaders that do well? And he talks about this idea of honor. If, you're, if, you're taking, if you like taking notes, just underline that word honor. And he actually says, treat them with double honor. And primarily, the kind of honor that Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you remember, the beginning of the chapter, was to honor widows who are truly widows. What's the kind of honor he's talking about with those widows? He's talking about financial assistance. When he talks about the commandment of honoring your father and mother, he's talking about, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, in context, he's talking about financially supporting your relatives. Does that make sense? And so here, he continues this idea. The honor primarily that Paul has in mind is paying your leaders, is financial support of ministry leaders. And interestingly, what Paul does is he quotes from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, this is an interesting choice because that passage has to do with animals, okay? And there's other passages like Numbers chapter 18, verse 8, which directly deal with ministry leaders. In Numbers 18, it's all about Aaron and, his pri- and the priesthood and his sons and God telling the nation of Israel, you should financially pay the priests so that they don't, have to, they don't have to work a night job in order to do the work of ministry. They can actually be paid, be financially supported in ministry. But what, what Paul does is he draws out this principle from Deuteronomy 25, which he also uses this same passage in 1 Corinthians to make a similar point. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11, he's already cited Deuteronomy 25. He says this, If we, speaking of himself, have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? It's this idea of, of Paul is saying, the ox, while it's pl- pulling a plow, there's going to be some grain that falls on the ground. Don't, like, whip the ox when it tries to, like, bend, like, if it's hungry. Like, don't just, like, no, you're not allowed to eat any of that. It's like, the ox is the one working in the field. Where should the food come from that feeds the ox? From the From the field. And that's the principle. And Paul draws this not only from the Old Testament, but also from Jesus' own model of ministry. Jesus didn't have to work at a coffee shop in order to be a traveling minister. Do you realize this? He was financially supported from the people who benefited from his teaching and his miracles. In Matthew uh, chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, this is Jesus' instructions to his disciples when he sends them out uh, traveling village to village. He says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. He says this, don't take your money with you. Don't bring your credit card with you. Don't take your personal funds with you. He says this, no bag for your journey or two tunics, sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And Jesus gives instructions to his disciples that when they're going and they're ministering door to door, village to village, and someone receives them, he's like, let those people take care of you. 
Let those people feed you. Let those, pe- like, like, let those people show hospitality to you. The minister is supported by their ministry. I, I don't think I've ever heard a pastor preach this passage because it can't help but sound a little bit self-serving. Does that make sense? And I just want to say this. I just want to like, I'm not asking for a raise, okay? It's not the reason. This is the next passage in 1 Timothy. We're going to go through it. Uh, but, but the reality is, I've seen this happen time and time and time again. Where churches kind of get this wrong in some ways. And they kind of, you know, we know, and we'll see in a second. Uh, and we'll actually see next week that pastors, church leaders shouldn't have a love of money, Right? You cannot serve both God and money, and so you can't let that creep in. And so sometimes nonprofits in general, not just churches, but nonprofits in general, have a tendency to try to squeeze the most out of the employee and compensate with the least. Does that make sense? That's not actually the principle biblically we see cover to cover in Scripture. Now, there are certain situations where a church leader or a ministry leader is unable to be paid by the people that they're ministering to. So an example of this uh, would potentially be in the early years of planting a church where you don't have a whole congregation. You just have a small handful of people. Another example would be someone going onto the mission field. And, you know, they're, they're going to an, maybe an unreached people group, or they're going to an area where they're not going to be able to show up, collect a bunch of funds to, to pay for them. And that, like, that it's good for us to support uh, those kind of situations. Or college ministry would be another example that I think about. Let's be honest, college kids aren't going to be paying a salary to a campus minister who's, who's only doing their work on uh, campus. And yet, there's other situations, like a local church, that it's completely appropriate for church leaders to be paid. And that's what Paul's primarily talking about when he says those who preach and teach, those who, who are spending 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours a week doing the work of ministry for the local church, where should their... Uh, where should their financial support come from? It should come from the field that the ox is threshing in. It should come from the, 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 the ministry that that person is leading in. And I just want to say, once again, I'm not asking for a raise. I'm so thankful uh, to be able to focus on what I believe is my, my calling from God to be a pastor and to dedicate time because think about this just, just economically. Every hour, if I were to have to spend bivocationally, and some people are bivocational ministers, and some people are, you know, fundraised ministers, and all those different contexts exist. But I myself am just so, I just want to say this from the bottom of my heart, so incredibly thankful that I don't have to work another job in order to support my family. I'm thankful that my wife is able to stay home with our three young kids. This is, this is a season of life where it, it, like, even the child care costs alone for three kids five years and younger would be a lot on our family, right? And it just so, I just want to say this on behalf of myself and our other church staff, I'm so incredibly thankful. This is a generous church. I'm not calling you out on this in any uh, means, but I'm just saying that there can be that perspective in, in churches sometimes. And it's, a to, it's totally appropriate for, for for church leaders to be compensated in such a way that, that they're just able to focus. They're able to focus on the kingdom work that God calls them to. Does that make sense? Yes. How, yeah, you can celebrate that. That's great. 
But what's the second honor? There's double honor here, okay? What's the second kind of honor? The first honor that he's talking about, the primary one, he's talking about it seems like some of the elders, not all of them, but some of them are dedicated to the work of ministry, and they are financially paid by the church. We see that even in the first century. But there's another kind of honor, and this is what you would think of when you think of the word honor traditionally. It's the idea of respect. That even if a ministry leader isn't paid, that all of the leaders in ministry should be respected. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Another passage I've never heard. Uh, I shouldn't say never, but you just don't typically hear preachers preach these passages. It just comes across a little bit self-serving. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Can I get an amen out there? Amen. <laughs> Obey your leaders. Because honestly... The tone could get, like, it could be a sign of, like, toxic leadership if someone's always preaching this kind of, like, obey me, right? He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And yet, this is very important. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Who will I have to give an account for your soul to? Not to you. I will be judged as a lead pastor of this church For the souls of the people I lead. Holy cow, this is crazy. Okay? (laughs) Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. There are many things that you can do to appreciate or to honor a leader. Right? Please pray for your church leaders. Pray for wisdom. Pray for protection. You can, you, you know, you can serve your... I had uh, a, a life group come and lay some extra sod in a dead patch in my, in my backyard. You could do that kind of stuff, right? You could serve your leaders. You can encourage your leaders. Man, just the tone of people's conversation this morning with a little bit of cold air in the room. People are just a lot more encouraging this morning. <laughs> Let's keep it coming, all right? And, uh, you know coffee and restaurants, you know, you could like fruit baskets. What, like there's lots of things you could do. There's lots of things you could do. Here's the most important thing. Follow the leader. Amen. Follow the leader. Obey. What was the words? Obey and submit to the leaders. Because the reality is sometimes church people And I just know this because I'm a pastor's kid and I'm a pastor myself. Sometimes church people can get a little bit of an attitude of, we pay you, so now we can treat you however we want. Or we appreciate you in these ways, so now we can be hypercritical in these other ways. Does that make sense? The best, and I'm not saying fruit baskets are great. I'm not saying don't, like, whatever. Here's what I'm saying. This is the double honor. Not just it's a good thing for church leaders to be paid out of the ministry that they lead, but here's here's, follow the leader. It doesn't do anyone, doesn't do you any good, doesn't do me any good. It doesn't actually even do the witness of our church any good for a ministry leader to hate their job, to dread it. To open up the email inbox and feel like it's a, it's a little bit of a death. 
Like, what is it going to be? It's just like Russian roulette. What is it going to be today, right? Does that make sense? It doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do the church good. It doesn't do the ministry good. It doesn't do the leaders good. It doesn't do, the, it doesn't do you any good at all. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. It's no advantage for you if I hate my job and my calling. And Moses, in the Old Testament, is the quintessential ministry leader, okay? He's a prototype for many of the other religious leaders that would come after him. And he had a difficult job. He, uh, he was, you know, used it powerfully by God to free the people, let my people go to, you know, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. He, just, he was a conduit for amazing power from God directly. And yet, one of the greatest challenges that Moses faced was not the army of Pharaoh, was not the Red Sea. It was, it, you want to know the greatest challenge that he faced? grumbling voices of hundreds of thousands of Israelites who literally had been freed from slavery and they could not get over the fact that they don't have any more cucumbers and melons in the wilderness. Where's my cucumbers? Like you just hear it. And Moses is like, you were literally a slave before I showed up. I'm leading you to the promised land. And they're like, but the melons. <laughs> you see it all come to a head. This is, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not sharing this, be, uh, like, for me, to be hypercritical. I'm, I'm actually sharing this. I hope there's someone in this room who maybe goes, you're visiting, you go to another church, you can share this video with your pastor. You, you know, like, we have a good thing going here at Hill City Church. We have a fairly healthy culture, and I'm so thankful to be here. I'm not saying this critically, you know, hypercritically of our church at all. I'm giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of church leadership. If you've never seen it before, here it is. It all comes to a head in Numbers chapter 11, where the, the actual problem that Moses is facing is people want cucumbers and melons, and they're willing to go be slaves again. And Moses is like, do you remember the brutality of Pharaoh and his treatment? Do you remember the infanticide where he literally killed your baby boys? And they're like, but the melons. Like he just, and Moses is like, I can, literally cannot. Like that's how we would say it. Moses is like, I just can't deal with this any longer. This is called death by a thousand paper cuts, by the way. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's a critical spirit and enough of those kinds of comments. And this is why like I talk about email sometimes, but it's, it truly matters. This stuff truly matters. Numbers 11, 14, and 15, a glimpse behind the curtain of the pressures of ministry leadership. Moses praying to God, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may see, that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses wants to die. The burden of leadership is killing him. And it's not because he's being mistreated in these drastic ways. It's, not, it's, it's the death by a thousand paper cuts, a critical spirit, a grumbling spirit within the congregation. This really, really matters. Because 20,000 leaders in the year 2020, 20,000 American church leaders quit in the year 2020. 
Of those who remained, this is from a Barna study in 2020, of those who remained, the people who were left, over 50% wanted to quit, but didn't. And the numbers didn't look all that better in 2021 or 2022. And I know we look back at 2020 and we're like, wasn't that crazy? It's like, yeah, things were crazy. There's a pandemic. There's, you know, there, there's this political climate and an election year and there's racial tension. There's all this sort of stuff. But I can tell you, as someone who has watched my brothers and sisters who led churches... It wasn't the external things happening in the world that made leaders want to quit. It was the way that their churches responded to those things and specifically responded to their leadership decisions in that season. Once again, I dealt with this a little bit. We have a, we, I made it through, I would say, relatively unscathed compared to most uh, ministry leaders but I'm just, I've sat with other pastors and prayed for them because they needed the strength to not go back to their church and quit that very same afternoon. I've literally been in the room with these church leaders. It's just an email. It's just a social media post. It's just a, and I, listen, I'm not advocating blindly following leaders. I'm not, I'm not advocating not having accountability structures in place. We'll talk about all this stuff in a second. What Paul is talking to Timothy about is the good ones. If you've got a good one, if you've got good church leaders, make it your job to make their job a joy. Make it your job to respect them. You're not going to agree with every decision that I make, but there's a, you know there's a tone in even saying that you disagree. There's a tone. There's a way. There's a way to still honor and disagree with someone. There's a way to still follow someone and disagree with someone. And there's certainly a way to just love your leaders, pray for them, and make, make it your job to make their job a joy. Does that make sense? I'm not quitting. I promise. I, 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 lo- like, I love this church, but this truly must be said in a conversation about ministry leaders, because here's the reality. I hear so many people talking about church hurt, and specifically a leader, a person in a church who hurt them. And I can just tell you, I've seen, I'm not to undermine that. We're going to look at this in a moment. We're going to look at fallen leaders in just a moment. But I can tell you something that no one is talking about is the amount of church leaders who've been hurt by the people that they've, they've poured out their blood, sweat, and tears to lead. And you have to keep that in mind. You have to keep that in mind. All right, let's move on. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without, pre, uh, without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. So here's the question. We talked about how do we treat good leaders with, with honor. How do you treat a fallen leader? Or more specifically, how do you treat a leader that you suspect may need to be removed? Because that's really the occasion here. There's an allegation. How should we treat bad leaders? Now, there's two errors that, that churches can take in this. One error is to 
intentionally ignore any kind of criticism or negative feedback or allegation against a leader. And you see this all the time, and I'm just here to say that that's not right, right? Where the el- we, you know, they've got the elders, and they're all just kind of like defending the lead, the lead pastor, but there's clearly something that happened wrong, and they just want to sweep it under the rug, and they're like, they, they find a way, you know, someone who's a victim, they find a way to like make them the offender, and the, you know, and the lead pastor's the victim. You, you, you see that? I'm just here to say, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. That's the first error. That's the extreme. But there's another extreme as well. And the other extreme is an overreaction. And this is what I've talked about already. It's kind of like you turn any kind of failure into a cause for removal. And it's the idea of uh, ministry leaders, which we should be above reproach. It's one of the qualifications for eldership, to be above reproach. But the moment someone is like just below reproach, Maybe even in a moment of weakness, or they stumble, or whatever, like something happens, it's like, ah, gotcha! And it's an overreaction, and it's like swift and unfair punishment. So those are the two errors. There's intentional ignorance, and then there's overreaction. Because the reality is, I can just tell you this as, as a church leader, that the more people you lead, the more influence for God's kingdom that you have, what happens is, I believe, simultaneously, you also experience a higher degree of spiritual attack. At least that's been my experience as our church has grown, as God has been doing powerful things, that it's like the better the ministry is going, the more difficult some of the spiritual opposition and resistance I face. And one of the ways that the enemy gets a foothold is actually through influencing people. Influencing people who maybe are hurt themselves or maybe aren't in a good place themselves to actually find something wrong with me or find something wrong with another church leader right? He's the accuser. Do you know that about Satan? He's the accuser. And so accusation, an accusation, an allegation alone is not a means for, or, or, or a reason for immediate, swift, don't even have an interview removal. Does that make sense? So here's the point. We must take allegations seriously, but not gullibly. That's the job of a healthy accountability structure. Hey, that's a serious accusation. We need to take that seriously, but not gullibly. And the principle, once again, that Paul uses here is actually an Old Testament principle of not relying on a single witness, but actually on two or more witnesses. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 17, 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Where does this principle come from? This principle of needing to have multiple witnesses. It comes from capital punishment. It's like, okay. (laughs) Serious stuff. This is, we could say, it's dead serious. It's life or death serious. And so in the same way that you don't, somebody makes an accusation and it's a capital offense, you don't want to move to execution right away. Because you don't want to go back and, and you know, talk to that person you're like, well, they actually didn't do it? Well, we can't undo that. That's how serious this kind of church discipline is for the church leader. And that should also, once again, inform our tone in some of the things that you say about the people who lead you. And in our social media age, we just, quite frankly, don't have any filters anymore. I've been called some pretty negative things in, in comments on our YouTube clips or in our, on our Instagram clips. And I'm like, man, 
two or three witnesses. I'm not actually a demon, you know, or whatever, right? (laughs) Some of the things that we have in place, you know, we do annual reviews for our staff. All of our staff have supervisors that we report to on a weekly basis. Our elders, one of the things our elders serve for uh, one-year terms that get renewed at the end of the year. This is, this is nothing new to you if you're a partner here at Hill City Church, but we put all of our elders before the partners at the end of the year, and we just accept feedback. Hey, has there anything, you know, anything happened this last year that we aren't aware of for this leader? Anytime that someone says, I have hesitation about that leader. We always follow up. We make sure we do our uh, due diligence there. And those things have even sparked leaders to take a leave of absence in the past just because we want to take that stuff really seriously. Now, there's the question. There's always a question about me. Well, I'm an elder. I'm a lead pastor. Isn't it easy for me to just like do whatever I want and rule with the iron fist and I can never, you know, I'll never fire myself or whatever. We actually have literally in our bylaws something called an accountability board, which would be formed if there's ever a very serious allegation against me, uh, where the elders would form a separate, you know, third-party team, which would investigate, and they would actually give a decision on whether I needed to be removed or not. So we have all, we have accountability structures in place. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about, like, we should just follow leaders regardless. But isn't it always better to be proactive about ensuring that a leader stays healthy? Wouldn't it be better? Rather, rather than to rely on those, I would say, last resort measures to, get for, to allow a leader to get to the point where they're being removed, where they committed moral failure, where something like that happens. This upcoming Wednesday, uh, we have an elders meeting at 6.30 a.m. Do you want to know the topic that we're going through in this elders meeting? Our, your, the elders of Hill City Church are going to be reading through the qualifications for eldership from 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to be doing a self-evaluation and discussing with one another what are some of the qualifications we're, we're doing strong in personally and what are the ones we're weakest in and we're going to share action steps for how we can continue to grow. Isn't that better yes. than having a accountability? Like we're going to have an accountability board in the bylaws. We hope we never use it. I hope you never hear the phrase accountability board again. I hope I never hear that phrase again, right? But it's, it's important to have those safety measures, but it's even more important for us to be creating a culture where somebody doesn't get to the point where they need to be removed. But if someone does, if there's a moral failure, if something happens, here's Paul's words to Timothy. We rebuke persistent and unrepentant sin. We rebuke persistent and unrepentant sin. Those two uh, adjectives, those two adjectives are very important for qualifying this. People aren't perfect, and pastors are people too. We just have to recognize this. There is a higher degree of accountability to God. This is why Paul, Paul says, hey, that person's going to also stand before God and Jesus and the elect angels. He's reminding us of that. So there is a higher uh, standard for leaders, but there's also just this recognition that we're all works in progress, And there is a difference between a persistent ongoing sin and a one-moment failure. Is there a difference between those two things? There's also a difference, by the way, between someone who's confronted for a sin and they are, the way that they respond is immediately in humility, in confession, and in repentance, or someone who's confronted for their sin and they keep doing the same behavior or they keep doing the same thing. Does that make sense? 
And you see this. I mean, you still get, look at King David and King Saul. Both did terrible things. But one was persistent, unrepentant, and one was the moment that he was confronted about it. He humbled himself before the Lord. Now, there's still consequences in both. But King David continued to be King David till the day he died. He was not immediately and swiftly removed from office, even when he committed a very terrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah and that whole situation. Now, interestingly, Paul's words for rebuking a church leader is more strict than Jesus' words about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Typically, you don't jump right to rebuking someone publicly in the presence of the entire congregation. That's more strict. And the reason for that is we just have to acknowledge that the sins of the leader influence the community. And that's where this idea of church hurt. Like, if, I, if something terrible were to happen to me and my family, right, and, and I were to commit some, some sin, it would immediately influence hundreds of people in the Treasure Valley, and we've, like, again, that's what I'm talking about, this idea of church hurt. And I know some of you, like, tragically, firsthand, have experienced that sort of thing. However, Paul saying that leaders should be rebuked publicly is only after, like, this is like, you've brought an accusation, there's two witnesses, you're, you're confronting the leader. Does that make sense? This is not permission to slam ministry leaders on social media. It's not an excuse for everyone with a smartphone to rebuke a leader publicly. Does that make sense? John Stott says it really well. He says this, It is a safe rule that private sins should be dealt with privately and only public sins publicly. It is neither right nor necessary to make what is private public until all possibilities have been exhausted. And we can just learn from that great pastor, John Stott, in this case. That certainly, if somebody has sinned publicly, it needs to be addressed publicly. Otherwise, it truly is intentional ignorance and it's sweeping something under the rug. However, there is also a case to be made that if someone sins, even in a way that they need to be removed, they're fired, they're stepped down from office, it's actually somewhat for the protection of their own family and even for the ministry of the ongoing ministry of the church, not to share all the details of what happened with a congregation. Even if there's like question marks and there's unknown. That I, I think that that's a very, very wise thing for uh, John Stott to say. By the way, the reason that Paul gives for rebuking a leader publicly, and you're not going to like this, okay, is not to shame the leader. He says, rebuke that elder publicly so that the fear of God may rest on who? May rest on you. The goal of a public rebuke for a leader is actually private repentance for the congregation. Look at Jesus' words, Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We can get so fixated on the sins of someone else. And I'm just here to tell you that the easiest way to avoid your own sanctification is preoccupation with the sins of another person. And this is, this is no easier than in people who are in leadership. Because one of the things that comes with a platform, one of the things that comes with having a 45-minute broadcasted video on YouTube of me saying things, right, is it's easier to see my flaws. And if someone's takeaway week after week is, well, you did this wrong, or you did that wrong, or you know, if someone's just hyper-focused like a microscope, 
with every leader under the microscope, here's what you need to do. You need to take a step back from the microscope and recognize you're not the judge. I'm going to stand before God one day. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ, the ultimate judge one day. Take a step back from the microscope, turn around and look in the mirror. And if our eyes are always glued on the microscope of judging others, we're never going to see the speck in our own eye that we need to see when we look in the mirror. Look at Paul's words in Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Again, I'm not trying to like deflect anything here. I'm just here to recognize that this is... This is is a serious thing. In our day and age where we love gossip and online and social media is one of the places where it's just abounds. And we need to be really cautious about being so hypercritical and keeping a list of all the wrongs of especially the ministry leaders and the church leaders and become so disenfranchised and disillusioned with the church where the purpose of a public rebuke is to actually wake up a congregation to the severity of sin. And to say, so this is what happened with this leader, and, you know, we hate to say it, but we're going to have to let him go, or, you know, this, that, or the other, and you, you explain that. That should put the fear of God in the people. And to say, maybe, maybe I should look for some specks in my own eye. That's the goal of a public rebuke of a leader. This is serious stuff that we're talking about. Didn't I, did I warn you about this? Did I remember to do that? I had it in my notes. This is heavy stuff. Let's bring it back to Jesus here at the end. We're meant to follow the leaders that God has put in place. Authority is given by God. And yet, we also need to follow the leader, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ himself. Look at Jesus' words on leadership in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays, his, lays down his life for his sheep. I said this, pastors are people too. Pastors aren't perfect. But here, if you want to look to a leader that your heart has been longing for, look no further than Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And there's some of you in this room that you, you've kind of used the fact that church leaders have fallen as an excuse not to follow Jesus in your own life. And, yet, like, and I just here to acknowledge, like, you're... You're supposed to follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul says. Like, I meant, like, church leaders, ministry leaders are meant to be an example to follow. But don't follow a church leader in place of Christ. See that? Follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me instead of Christ. And if there's a bad leader that you've met, and there's hypocrisy or, or burnout or moral failure or whatever, that's exactly what that is. That was a bad leader. And I'm sorry on behalf of like all pastors out there, I'm sorry that that person did not represent Christ to you. That's not an excuse to reject the leadership of Jesus in your life. Because Jesus is the ultimate leader that we've been longing for. He lived a perfect life. He took your sins and mine when he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And he rose in victory three days later. And I'm just here to call on you. Would you trust Jesus? Maybe for some of you, it's coming back to faith. It's coming back under the leadership, the lordship of Jesus in your life. For some of you, it might be the very first time, and today is the day that the gospel is clicking for you. It's making sense for you. Would you trust Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life? We've got 16 people already signed up to get baptized on Labor Day weekend, Church in the Park. 
And I know, I know there's more people in the room that that's that step for you of saying, okay, I'm coming to faith. I'm going to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I want to invite you to do that through baptism. You can sign up. You can find out more info about baptism online, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. For those of you who you're in, you're following Jesus. And honestly, again, you're really, you're like, you're great. You're following like the leadership of this church well. You're doing well. Here's something I would just remind all of us to do. To continue to build your life on the rock. To build your life on the cornerstone that is Christ Jesus. Look at Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, those forerunner church leaders, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And we just all know that this is true. That if you're building a structure and you take away any of the bricks, any of the stones from that structure, it's going to negatively impact the structural integrity. Does that make sense? And so I'm here to just acknowledge that and own that. If, you have, if you, you, you've been a victim in some ways or you've experienced church hurt in some ways, I'm not saying that you just have to flex your muscles and get over it. I'm not saying that at all. It's going to shake the structure. But it doesn't have to destroy the house if the foundation is still intact. And for some of us, we've looked to maybe the apostles or the prophets or this lead pastor or this mentor or this youth leader that we had back in the day. They were actually the foundation for our house. And I'm just here to tell you, if you've been hurt by the church, Jesus can heal you. If you're willing to build your life with him as the cornerstone. And I'm not here to excuse it. Like, it's, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. You, start t- you take out enough bricks or enough leaders. And this is why we should pray for our leaders. And create a context and a culture where, where ministry leaders can thrive. Where, where, where people don't have to burn out. Where people don't have to wonder, like, I wish I had another skill set so that I could get another job. But I can't and I'm trapped, right? We shouldn't have to be in that place as a culture. We are, to be very clear, in American church right now. That's the situation we're in right now. And I'm just asking the question, where are we going to go in the next decade? Next year is another election year. Will it go the same way as it did four years ago? And I just want to tell you, if you've been hurt by the church, Jesus can heal you. But for some of you, you're in the room and you're hearing me talk about church leaders. And may, maybe you've been a church leader, a ministry leader in the past. Maybe not. But you're just hearing the, the, these words through the lens of, I've failed. I know I. You're like, that's me. That moral failure. I I didn't get married thinking my marriage was going to end up in shambles. We didn't start having kids thinking my kids were going to resent me. I didn't, you know, start working thinking I was going to get into this corruption or or thinking I was going to be dishonorably discharged or whatever that looks like for you. And I just want to tell you this. If you fail in any way in your faith journey, Jesus can restore you. It's not going to happen without consequence. Or accountability. It's also not going to happen without confession and repentance. But if you failed, moral failure, any other kind of failure, Jesus can restore you. Need I remind you that the Apostle Paul, who finished strong, he didn't start strong. He started as a murderer of Christians. Peter denied Jesus three times the night 
before Jesus would be crucified. And what does Jesus do? Peter, you're fired. John, you're going to be the new guy. What does Jesus do? He confronts him about it. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus gives Peter an opportunity to be restored. And I just want to tell you this. If you're humble, if you'll confess, if you'll repent, Jesus can restore you as well. So let's build our life on Christ, the leader that we've all been longing for, and allow Jesus to lead us, to heal us, and to restore us. Let's stand and worship our God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.